Great. It's so good to be with you this morning. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm Katie. I'm one of the leaders here at The Oak. I'm married to Matt. We have two daughters. Uh, my daughters are currently aged 10 and 6. Um, but when they were much younger, when they were toddlers, my own mum gave me some pretty sound advice, which was, she said, Katie, you need to pick your battles. And uh, as anyone who is a parent or a grandparent, or probably even more if you're a teacher, I have so much respect for everyone in the room who is a teacher, um, you probably resonate with that idea that you need to pick your battles. What my mum meant was that if I tried to fight my children on everything we disagreed about, we would just be fighting each other all the time. And so, you know, if my child, I presented them with a blue cup full of drink, and I got the face that said, this is going to lead to a meltdown, only a pink cup is acceptable, then it was just going to be easier to pour the drink into the pink cup and present that to my daughter. Um, I'm sure many of you can relate. Um, but if, on the other hand, one of my children was refusing to get dressed for nursery, and it was a day that they needed to go to nursery and I needed to go to work, that was a battle I was going to have to fight because I needed them to go to nursery and I needed to get to work. The reason I tell that story this morning is that the battles that we choose to fight demonstrate what things are important to us. And in the same way, when we look into the Bible, if we pick out the occasions when Jesus picked fights with people, actually, we find out what was important to him. Now, you might be surprised to even think about the idea of Jesus picking fights with people, because you sometimes get this like, image of Jesus as meek and mild, and you kind of have this painted image of him wandering around in a flowing robe with bunnies following him and that kind of thing. Um, but then when you read the Gospels, you realize just that is not a picture that is actually accurate. Jesus upset plenty of people. The things he chose to pick fights about matter because they show us what was important to him. So last week, Rebecca spoke to us so brilliantly from the start of chapter 9 of John, and that's the passage we're going to continue looking at today. And um, in the passage that we, we looked at last week, Jesus has encountered a man born blind, and he's healed him in a really particular way. So um, he's gone to the man, he's picked up some earth from the ground, he's mixed that with his own saliva, he's rubbed that on the man's eyes and told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man has done that and he's been healed. And then in today's passage it's revealed there's another aspect to this story and that is that the healing has taken place on the Sabbath. So according to the religious authorities of the day, it was not okay to do any work on the Sabbath. Their law forbade any work at all, perhaps including even healing. And the fact that it is, this healing has happened on the Sabbath, it causes divisions within the religious authorities, and it really, really annoyed some of them. Now, if you're not familiar with that term Sabbath and you're thinking, what is she talking about? That's completely okay. We're going to spend a little bit of time this morning unpacking what is the Sabbath and then thinking about what it means that Jesus chose to pick a fight about this particular topic. Because this is not the first or the only time that Jesus chose to heal on the Sabbath. So we know that when he did this, he was making a point. So we're going to read uh, today's passage from John chapter 9. What's happened is the man who was born blind and has now been healed has gone home, he's got back to his house, and all of his neighbours are just astonished. They're 
just overwhelmed. What has happened to this guy? We've known this guy all his life. He's always been blind, and now he can see what has happened. And so they decide to take this man to the religious authorities, to uh, the Pharisees who were the spiritual and community leaders of their day. So they take the man to them to kind of try and work out what's happened and what does all this mean. So let's just read from John chapter 9. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him just going to pray before we continue. Yeah, Father, I thank you so much for your word. And um, yeah, just pray again that uh, your word will be what speaks this morning, that anything that's just of me will fall away, and anything that is of you will just go deep into our hearts and stay there, Father. Amen. So I'm going to take regular sips of water to keep my voice going. So this morning, I want us to look at three things. I want us to think about what is the Sabbath, and what was Jesus doing by healing on the Sabbath, and then think about how are we going to respond. So first of all, let's think about what is the Sabbath. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus was a Jew who was living in first century Palestine, so about 2,000 years ago. And the land he lived in was under the control of the Roman Empire, so he was living under Roman law. But as a Jew, he was also living under the law of Moses, So those are the rules that God had given to his people after he led the Israelites out of Egypt. And um, chief amongst those laws was something you may have heard of, even if you're not very familiar with that part of the story, which is the Ten Commandments. So I imagine pretty much everyone has heard of the Ten Commandments, even if you wouldn't be able to tell me all ten of them, and that's okay. Um, When we think of the Ten Commandments, we tend to remember the ones that are maybe slightly more dramatic sounding, and particularly the ones that resonate with our own 21st century British law, say, things like do not steal, do not murder, those kind of things. But the third of the Ten Commandments that God gave to the Israelites was to keep the Sabbath. And that commandment also came with an explanation. So in Exodus 20, we read this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, 
nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in Jesus' day, he and his people would stop working on a Friday night They wouldn't work at all on Saturday, which was the Sabbath, and then they would take up work again on a Sunday morning, which was the first day of the week. And in doing that, they were fulfilling the commandment that God had given them through Moses. But, as this passage suggests, they were also remembering something even further back to the very creation of the world itself. In Genesis chapter 2, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. I find Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, utterly mind-blowing, because on the one hand, we're reading God rested, but then on the other hand, we know God never stops working. We actually have a refrain in one of the songs that we sing at the Oak that literally says over and over, he never stops, he never stops working, he never stops, he never stops working. Which is true, because God is always at work in our world, he is holding our whole world together, and he is always working out his purposes. In Psalm 121 it says, he who watches over you will not slumber. So how is it that God rested, but also never stops working? And what does the Bible even mean when it says that God rested? I think it's really important to recognize God did not rest because he got tired. Creation is dependent on God for its origin, but the Bible makes very clear that God is dependent on no one. He doesn't need anything or anyone. It's him who gives life and breath to everyone else. So God didn't rest because he needed to be restored. He hadn't used up all his power on creating the world and needed a lie down like I might after organizing a child's birthday party. (laughs) There's a really interesting book I read um, by a guy called John Kostler, and uh, he says in his book, God's rest is the rest of completion rather than restoration. On the seventh day, God's work was finished. I think the idea of God being always working and always at rest is very, very hard for our finite, time-bound brains to grasp. But God is not bound by time in the way that we are. And rather than dwelling too much on this idea that is very hard for us to get our heads around, the point I want to make this morning is that God is the source of all life and activity, but he's also the source of all rest. An absence of work and activity is not in itself rest. True rest can only come from the one who initiated rest, from God himself. So when the Israelites were commanded that for six days they should work and on the seventh day they must rest, this was not just about having a break in activity. It was a reminder that everything was from God and for God. It was an exercise in trust too, that by not working on the Sabbath, God would still provide for them that they would not go hungry. And it set them apart from the rest of the world. Nobody else did this. Nobody else took one day off every single week and stopped working. So the Sabbath was a sign to everyone of the Israelites' special covenant with God. 
In Egypt, they had been slaves to the Egyptians, forced to work every single day of the week without end, without rest. In this new covenant with God himself as their leader, they were to work for six days and then rest. So, having laid that context of what the Sabbath is, what was Jesus doing by healing this man on the Sabbath? And why were the religious authorities divided about what to think about it? So over time, the religious leaders had added to those Sabbath requirements that we just read about. They were very keen to ensure that nobody accidentally strayed outside of the lines and started working when they shouldn't work. So they created 39 classes of work to distinguish what work was permitted and what work was not permitted on the Sabbath. And prohibited work included anything associated with healing unless the person's condition was immediately life-threatening. So they managed to distinguish the two. Now, the case of the man we just read about in John 9, that clearly wasn't a life-threatening situation. This man had been born blind. His life was not in immediate danger as a result of his disability. So when faced with this man who's been healed on the Sabbath, the religious leaders just don't know what to make of it. If we look at our passage again in verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. And the thing is, as I said earlier, this is not the first time that Jesus has done this. Back in John chapter 5, we've already had another account of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. And in the other Gospels, there are further accounts of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. So in Luke chapter 13, Jesus heals a woman who was crippled on the Sabbath. And we also see Jesus breaking other aspects of these Pharisees' Sabbath rules. So in Mark chapter 2, Jesus' disciples pick some grain on the Sabbath. And that's also seen as harvesting and violating the Sabbath laws. So Jesus is making a deliberate point by repeatedly violating these Pharisees' rules. The question is, what point is he making? I think he's making two points. I think, first of all, he's trying to basically illustrate that the Pharisees have missed the point. They've missed the bigger picture. And the second thing, I think, is he's also trying to point towards himself. So the first thing is that the reason we see over and over the Gospels that Jesus gets so annoyed with the Pharisees is that they're so close to the truth, but they've distorted it. They are experts in the law. They are the ones who are supposed to be able to see, and they are the ones who've missed it. Have you ever played the game where you see an image of something very close up, and then you have to work out what it is? Anyone want to tell me what they think that is? Anyone willing? What was that? Have, oh, good guess, no. Not toothbrush, no. Spaghetti. Spaghetti, well done, both at the same time. Points to you guys. It is, in fact, a very close-up picture of spaghetti. Okay, next one. What do you reckon? A hedgehog. A hedgehog. No, it's not a hedgehog. A paintbrush. a paintbrush, yes. Well done, it is a paintbrush. Okay, last one. Anyone know what this is? Candy floss. No, it's not candy floss. No. Sponge, yes, sponge. It is a washing-up sponge. Points to you. Um, you guys are good at this. Well done. Um, 
the point of the game is just to say that actually when you get very, very, very close to something, it actually becomes quite hard to work out what it is. And um, sometimes we're, we can all be guilty of just getting so involved in the detail of something that we can miss the big picture. Now, the Pharisees had done this. Jesus was not annoyed with them for wanting to be right with God, but he was immensely frustrated with them for forgetting the greatest commandment of all, which, to, which was to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. In Luke 11, we read this. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you Mike, cut out. You give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the Lord. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. And he was angry with them because they should have been the people who brought other people to God, but instead they acted more like gatekeepers. So further on in Luke 11, we read, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. So I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus deliberately provokes the Pharisees' attitudes to the Sabbath. So in Luke 13, where Jesus has healed a woman who'd been crippled for 18 years, and the Pharisees are indignant about it, Jesus says to them, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? But the second thing that I think Jesus is trying to say by healing on the Sabbath, and that I think comes through even more clearly in John's accounts than any of the other Gospels, is that the point is, he's healing on the Sabbath because he is God. So like so many things in the Old Testament, the Sabbath laws were a shadow, a foretaste of the new covenant that God would make through Jesus himself. Jesus was not just from God. He was not just another prophet speaking God's words of wisdom. He is God himself. And as you read through John's gospel, you realize that Jesus just does not leave it open to us to think of him as just another good person. There's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis, uh, which captures this brilliantly. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I don't want to take too much from um, Andrew and Ellie, who are going to be preaching in the next few weeks from the rest of John chapter 9. But let's just say that in our passage today, we read that the man who'd been healed calls Jesus a prophet. But his journey towards Jesus doesn't end there. 
You have to come back next week to find out what happens to him. <laughs> so what's our response to all of this? So first off, I do not think that we need to start being legalistic and start applying Sabbath regulations to our lives as followers of Jesus. This is definitely not a call to try and confine God's stuff to one day of the week. In Colossians 2, Paul writes, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Can you go on to the next slide for me? Thank you. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In keeping the Sabbath laws, the Israelites looked forward to a promise that was yet to come. As followers of Jesus, we look back to a promise that has been fulfilled. To quote from John Custer again, to fully grasp the biblical idea of rest, we must look beyond the Sabbath day and Sabbath discipline. Both point to something else. Rest is ultimately a person. When Jesus invites us to come to him, he invites us to enter his kingdom of rest. Rest is not just the absence of activity. True rest is found in a person. It's found in Jesus. I find this deeply challenging. I am a busy person. I always have a full to-do list. I find it very hard to stop, and I find it very hard to be still. And yet, and yet, the good news of Jesus is that he has saved me by his death and his resurrection. His salvation is a gift to me. It is not earned. I could never earn it. My righteousness in his sight is entirely dependent on his righteousness given to me. I cannot earn his love. He loves me as I am. As we spoke about brilliantly this morning with so many of the pictures that came, that he loves me, he loves us as we are. We do not have to be productive for him to love us. I do not have to preach today for him to love me. I do not have to work hard for him to love me. He loves me because he loves me, just as Ellie said earlier. He loves you because he loves you, because he loves you. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us first. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We have to start there. And if our hearts have wandered from that assurance of the Father's love for us, we need to reorientate ourselves. When I was a teenager, sometimes I would go on hiking trips uh, as part of the guides or with my youth group. And you quickly learn that it's not enough to just have a map. You also need to know where you are on the map, and you need to know if the map is upside down. If you get either of those things wrong, you are definitely going to get lost. We might know Jesus, but then over time, sometimes we can mistake where we are and where he is. We might lose where we are on the map and need to reorientate ourselves. And all this is not to say that finding rest in God leads to inactivity. The Bible is really clear. Our love for God will result in action, but the engine driving that activity will be different. If you look at a diesel car and an electric car from a distance, you will struggle to tell which is which. And yet, of course, under the bonnet, they're being driven by a totally different kind of engine, 
and powered by a different type of fuel. From the outside, it might at first seem that activity that's powered by fear and self-righteousness is the same as that powered by love and gratitude. But inside, there is a whole world of difference. So, how should we respond? Well, if you've never asked Jesus for his gift of salvation, that has to be the place to start. You will never find rest for your soul until you find Jesus. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, then we need to come to him for our rest. There is so much we could say about rest, isn't there? We could probably do a whole series just on rest. We live in a 24-7 culture. It can be really tempting to think that if we just got the balance right, if we scheduled things really well, then we would find rest. There isn't anything inherently wrong in trying to manage our time. It's just as long as we recognize that true rest is only going to be found in a person, not just the absence of activity. We have to come to Jesus if we want real rest. And sometimes that will mean making choices to make space for him in our lives. It might mean stopping, even stopping doing some good things in order us to open ourselves up to being aware of his presence and his voice. It might mean turning off our phones. It might mean turning our attention away from screens and seeking his presence and his voice. A few months ago, my electric toothbrush died. Sad times. Um, it wouldn't turn on, uh, or at least it was very hard to get it to turn on. And sometimes it would turn on and sometimes it wouldn't, which was just annoying. So uh, in the end, gave up. And I ordered a new toothbrush, and I put my old one on the pile of electrical stuff. Does anyone else have this in their house? You've got small items that you can't just put in the bin because they've got a battery and you need to take them to the tip, but it's not worth going for one toothbrush, so you put it in a pile. Um, so we have a pile, and I added it to the pile. I forgot about it, basically. And then last week, just as I was preparing this talk, I suddenly heard what I first thought was a drilling noise. And then I was like, what on earth is that? And I followed the sound. And to my astonishment, my old toothbrush had sprung to life all by itself. <laughs> and I'll tell you what's anno more annoying than an electric toothbrush that won't turn on. That's an electric toothbrush that won't turn off. <laughs> Particularly when it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you can't get the thing to turn off. In the end, I hid it in a drawer with the tea towels and went back to bed. <laughs> um, we all need to be able to find an off switch. And I know that's really hard for some of us. We have full-on jobs, we have caring responsibilities, we have a whole load of things that make it just really hard to stop. But we also just cannot keep going on forever. In Isaiah 40, we read, Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We all need to stop sometimes. We all need that space and connection with God. If you are in a season of feeling tired and exhausted, the absolute last thing I want to do today is add any guilt or shame to your already stretched emotions. If you are struggling with sleep or struggling with time or struggling with even the concept of rest, I do not want to heap any burden on you. Quite the opposite. I want you to know the Father's love and grace for you. I guess my question is, if it feels impossible to stop and rest right now, what would it take for you to find rest? And it might mean that you need to ask for help. It might mean admitting that you can't carry everything yourself alone. 
There is a humility required in recognizing that we cannot actually do all of the things all of the time. So as we come to an end, um, I just have two things for us to reflect on this morning. The first is we need to seek Jesus. That might be for the first time, it might be for the millionth time, but true rest isn't a person, and the person is Jesus. And the final thought I had as I was preparing was that we also need to guard our hearts against pride. The story read this morning just reminds me that the Pharisees failed to see. They missed that big picture of what God was doing. I do not want to make the same mistake and think that I always know what's right and I've always understood what God is doing. My prayer for myself, and maybe you want to join me in this, is that God will keep me close to him. He will open my eyes to see what he is doing. And where I fail to understand his work, he will correct my understanding. I'm going to invite the band back up um, to come, and we're just going to use a little bit of time to uh, sing and just to reflect.